And so, yeah, I'll, I'll go out one day and I will think that a specific objective is, is going to be safe. And I will be halfway up what we call the line, like the route that we're going to ski. And I see um, rocks coming down kind of around me, just these little pebbles. And throughout the day, as it gets warmer, they become a little bigger. And then eventually you'll see a, mi- a microwave sized rock rolling down the snow at 50 miles per hour right next to you. Um, and I'll, I'll see that and I'll realize, okay, it's getting a little bit too warm. There must be a, a rock wall above me. And as it gets warm, the ice that's trapping the rocks into the, the rocks around them um, melts. And that means the rock is now able to fall out. And when we start getting this rock fall, that becomes obviously a hazard. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series, and as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to tune in to any episode that you can. The whole idea behind this podcast series is to interview people from the world of education and beyond who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life through their chosen craft, whatever that craft may be. I genuinely believe that there is so much that can be learned by truly listening to people's journeys and examining what it is within themselves that continually pushes them, inspires them, and motivates them to want to get better every day in order to pursue excellence in their field of work. Today's episode is actually a part two to an interview that I began last week with professional adventure skier and mountain climber, Brody Levin. I highly recommend that before listening to this episode, if you haven't heard part one, which was released just a few days ago, that you listen to part one first because it will really set the frame for today's conversation. And in part one, we really dove deeply into the work that Brody does, what drives him, and what he has learned from more than a decade of climbing up and skiing down some of the most challenging mountains in the world. Brody is also a filmmaker, and in part one, he talks about a recent documentary that came out, I think it was on May 30th. Uh, The documentary is called Lost, and it can be found on YouTube as well. I put it in the show notes of part one, and it will be in uh, part two show notes as well. The documentary is only 14 minutes long, but it is extraordinary to see what Brody accomplished in 2018 on a trip to the country of Georgia, which borders the USSR. Brody had to climb up uh, one of the highest, he didn't have to, he chose to climb up one of the highest peaks in the country, Uh, but due to treacherous weather conditions, he had to camp on the side of the mountain for nearly two weeks before he was able to climb a vertical face that was 4,500 feet roughly, get to the top, and then ski down this vertical face. The documentary is extraordinary, and it's worth watching for certain. 
And that's just the beginning, really, because it's not so much about climbing mountains and skiing down the mountains, but more so what Brody learns about himself that he applies in both his personal and professional life and what he teaches to others along the way. In today's episode, Brody and I really unpack the idea of danger and the dangers that he faces on the excursions and adventures that he goes on. Without question, his line of work is dangerous. And Brody speaks very openly about the dangers that he faces on an ongoing basis in the work that he does, in particular avalanches. Brody talks deeply about avalanches, how he prepares for uncertainty and unknown. Although one can learn as much as they can about avalanches due to the uncertainty of the terrain and weather conditions, one can never claim to be an avalanche expert. So with that comes the need to constantly be prepared and ready for anything to happen. And it's ultimately through this preparation that allows Brody and other people that do the same thing in his field to face fear, uncertainty, and danger in the work that they do. So risk mitigation and risk management is a very important part of what he does and what he talks about today. And what comes shining through brightly in this episode today is not only the passion that Brody has for the work that he does, but his ability to genuinely take on a beginner's mindset. Despite having over 10 years of experience climbing up and skiing down some of the most challenging mountains in the world, Brody does not get complacent in his thinking, but instead approaches every new situation or new experience with fresh eyes in order to learn and get better and to grow each day. It was genuinely a pleasure to have another conversation with Brody, so I'm very happy that we could do this part two. And with that, let's jump right into my discussion with the inspiring Brody Levin. Okay, Brody, great to have you back on the show. I really appreciate it. And I said at the end of last show, part one, was we just started to kind of get into the weeds of what it is you do. And, and that's the thing that really fascinates me. And I said this to you is I'm glad I didn't rush that conversation just for the sake of pushing out a, a story. It's important to really understand somebody's context and the way that they think and the way they work and the way they operate in order to be their best. And that's why I jumped on uh, line right away to say, Brody, I'm sorry, man, but I want you back on for part two as soon as possible. And I'm, uh, I'm very happy that you agreed to it so soon. So thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to be back. So for those people who haven't heard part one, we're going to have some people hearing about you for the first time. And I've already recommended that they listen to part one before jumping into this, but let's just set the frame right away. And can you re-summarize, even though you talked about it in part one, but can you re-summarize your line of work and what it is you do? Yeah. Um, I mean, first and foremost, I'm a professional ski mountaineer. So I climb up and ski mountains for a living and I work with, uh, number of sponsors in the outdoor industry, um, like Garmin and goal zero. And I travel all over 
primarily looking for mountains that have not been climbed or skied before. Um, but those are hard to find and hard to climb. So, uh, yeah, do it, do it all over the place. And I've been doing it for about a decade now. Um, but with that comes a lot more than just going skiing and having fun every day. I do a lot of public speaking, writing, filmmaking, uh, social media work, appearances, those kind of things that kind of go along with being a professional skier. So do you have other sponsors are you allowed to mention or I have Garmin and Goal Zero. Those are the two that I mentioned. So Garmin makes these really cool watches that I use that are able to track what I do every day. Um, in addition to these two-way satellite communicators that allow me to text my girlfriend Katie from a glacier in the Arctic without uh, anything weird going on. I can just have a regular text conversation. Um, and then uh, Goal Zero makes the, the solar panels and the battery packs that allow me to power all the electronics needed to have the device to tell the stories from these remote places in the world. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So one thing that I wanted to jump into, uh, into last episode was your lobbying. And, and last week, uh, I think it was a day before we recorded, you were in Washington doing some lobbying. And I never got a chance to ask you that. So I want to provide this opportunity for you to share what it is you lobby about and the main purpose of it, what drew you to it, and how people can find out more about it. I should say I was, I, we are, we're still mid COVID here while at the time of recording. So I was uh, virtually in DC last week. I wish I was there. I, I typically go to Washington DC about once a year though, um, to go to Capitol Hill. And I think just due to the nature of my work and the people that I work with and my colleagues and the other professional athletes, we're able to get um, a good number of meetings with actual uh, Congress people and representatives, excuse me, uh, uh, senators and Congress people in DC pretty regularly. And it's because they, they want to hear what we have to say um, because we are seeing the effects of climate change firsthand as we travel the world to climb and ski and we spend our lives outside. Um, so I go there to represent the ski industry, but really to benefit everyone talking about um, what we can do to curb climate, how we can solve climate, the way um, that exploitation of public lands contribute to global warming um, and other issues that kind of go along with that environmental justice, social justice issues. And one of your things that you really emphasize is that you do human powered missions. Yeah. 100% of the skiing that I do, this is, this is pretty weird for a skier. Um, I don't ride cherry lifts, snowmobiles, snow cats, helicopters, anything like that. I think a lot of people picture a pro skier and they picture you like jumping out of a helicopter on top of a mountain and skiing down in two seconds. Um, that's not me. I'm much more a professional walker than I am skier because I spend all day walking up the mountains and then, you know, 2% of my day is actually spent skiing down the mountains. Uh, I climb them using a variety of means, but that's why in the summer I rock climb in the winter I ice climb, um, because I need to have this kind of toolbox of skills that allow me to get to the tops of these steep and difficult mountains. And normally when I put my skis on and start to descend is when I can finally take like a little bit of a breath of breath of relief because, uh, the climbing is much more challenging than skiing. And I feel very comfortable with skis on my feet, less so with the spiky crampons or, you know, just walking on mountains. You know, we're going to dive deeply into, uh, mindset and, uh, the mental skills that you've developed to be able to do the work that you do but let's just purely look at the physical work that you do right now. And 
obviously the, the climbing itself uh, requires a lot of physical exertion and is very strenuous. But can you just kind of take people through your physical, the physical training that you do um, aside from the climbing itself? Yeah, fortunately, what I do outside is like so enjoyable for me between the trail running and the alpine running and the climbing and the ice climbing and the skiing and the biking and the road biking and just all these things are um, what I have always done and what I genuinely like to do. So I don't think of them as much as training, but I do mix it up in a way that like yesterday I went for a, a decent sized run here in the Wasatch Mountains outside my house today, maybe I'll go for a bike ride or something like that. And, and I change it up just for the sake of variety. And I, I like that variety, but it's also actually good for my physical fitness. Cause it's, you know, so much of what I do is like, I need this, um, this well-rounded fitness and I need to be able to turn on at any time. I don't know if I have a trip coming up or a photo shoot coming up or something like that. And so I just need to be able to switch on and be fit and be ready. Um, and conveniently I like sports that kind of, uh, go all year. I like variety sports to cover the whole year. And I, I just do them with such consistency. You know, I'm doing something every single day. Uh, and that's because I want to be doing something every single day, not because I'm following like a training regimen. And I think I've been fortunate. I think as I get older, or I, I know like my peers need to kind of focus more on specific training regimens. I, I have yet to have an experience where my um, at least, at least skiing where my fitness is what is hindering me. Um, I just try to maintain a general level of high fitness or a high level of general fitness throughout the year. Um, and that's why, like I said, last time I was able to run that hundred mile race off the couch last year and why I'm able to go like, Oh, we're going to go on a climbing trip this weekend. Okay. I've been climbing enough to kind of cover that. And is there, um, are you looking at when you go out, you just said you went for a long run yesterday, you went for, uh, you'll go for a ride today. Are you looking at times or heart rate or anything like that? Or how do you approach it? Yeah, I think, um, that's one reason these Garmin watches are really handy for me because I, I do pay attention to time. What I'm generally going for is not mileage, but vertical feet gained. Cause that translates best to what I do in the mountains. Um, like yesterday, I climbed 4,200 feet in a little less than two miles. Um, so it's like a real steep trail. And so I'm pretty much walking. I'm like power hiking. You know, my hands are on my quads. I'm like pushing my legs down. But I've also done that specific run so many times where I know the times I'm trying to meet. You know, I get to the saddle of the mountain. I know that should be in this amount of time. I get to the summit. It should be about in this amount of time. On the way down, my round trip should be about this amount of time. So I am keeping an eye on that. Um, I don't look at I don't look at heart rate. Um, I definitely just look at yeah distance, vertical feet, and uh, and time. And and I go out frequently enough that I've done all of these runs numerous times. So like I said, I know the, the goals I'm setting for. But like I talked about in part one of this podcast, that I'm kind of always just trying as hard as I can. So yesterday, I know I like to do this run in under two hours round trip, this specific one I did yesterday. Um, I got to the summit about 10 minutes slow yesterday, and I, I knew I just wasn't having a great day because I had tried as hard as I could each step of the way going up. Um, and on the way down, I knew there was no chance I was going to hit that two-hour limit or that two-hour mark. And so I had no choice but to just accept that because I was trying as hard as I could, and I know what's good for my fitness is to try hard not to meet a certain arbitrary time. 
And that's a good way to look at it. And just accepting that some days you're going to have it. And some days you might be lagging a little behind legs might feel heavy and, and just knowing to let it go rather than push you yourself to injury. Cause that's what's yeah, totally, that's the case. And, and I mean, I've had my fair share of injuries. Um, just in the last few years, I've started to experience a little bit more of these overuse injuries that I've heard about. Um, and so I, I certainly try to prevent those, but I also don't do any of the stuff that, um, I think the industry pushes and people like to think works for them or does work for them. You know, I don't, I don't get massages. I don't take any supplements. I don't eat a specific diet. Um, I don't use CBD or any of this stuff you rub on your muscles or these big leg things that I, I, I just, I eat what I think is healthy and I exercise as much as I think is healthy. Um, and that's kind of where it stops for me. And I think the simplicity of that allows me to not have any, um, well, definitely no like placebo effect going on, but at the same time, it allows me to, when I'm in a foreign country on a month long trip and I don't, I don't have this certain nutritional powder that I put in my same smoothie that I drink every morning. Cause I don't actually do that. Um, it allows me to be a little more flexible and I appreciate that flexibility. You know, uh, I, I can, I, I just kind of do what feels good for me and that works well for me. And I don't personally want to fall in a rut of, or what I would consider a rut of needing this consistency because in my lifestyle, it's hard to have that consistency. Like I don't even drink coffee, for example. And when I'm with a climbing partner that like wakes up in the morning and it's, we're starting at 2am and he or she is like, Oh, I just can't do anything until I get my coffee. I'm like, that's not convenient right now. We need to go. Like I'm tired too, but I can at least operate, you know? And, and so I try to keep that flexibility because I think it's um, useful and, and I think it's an asset in the mountains actually. Well, yeah, huge. And some people, some athletes when they're very superstitious, right? <clears throat> so when totally. something happens, such as their favorite brand of coffee isn't available, then they go into a bit of a funk and they think they suddenly think that because I lack that in this moment, I'm suddenly not going to be my best. So that's really important. And mental agility, again, that's what we stressed in part one. I actually really like what you're saying. I think that makes, that's, that's a really, really good point. Yeah. Because what I, if there is a pattern for me, say every night I eat tacos, I don't perform well the next day. I don't see those patterns and I don't know about them and I don't want to know about them. Um, because if there was something that really helped me, I wouldn't want to get in this, in this pattern where I'm like, Oh, I need this every day. You know, I really think a lot of it is, um, is mental and I like to stay mentally agile, but I also like to stay just, just kind of flexible and easy, you know, and, and that may be one reason I'm not a top caliber athlete. You know, if I was like a cutting edge endurance athlete, that may not be the case, but for the time being, I don't need chiropractors and, whatever else people use. Yeah. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about, and I, I do some public speaking as well when I go to conferences and I'm actually tomorrow night uh, speaking online for the California Association of Physical Health, Physical Education, Health and Recreation and Dance. So I'm doing kind of a, it's called the core series. And whenever I'm approaching a talk, I listen to music when I ride or I run. But then whenever it's that talk time coming up, I kind of leave the music at home and I use my running or cycling just to kind of spark my creativity and start to think about my talks and a direction I might go in the talk. And then I have all these amazing ideas that just kind of flourish. 
And that if I don't write those ideas down, as soon as I get home, I lose them. So can you tell me, do you have like a, a, a ritual or a routine when you're out? Do you listen to music? Do you sometimes just think? Is it connected to your speaking? I just talk about that. I think that's a, a really good question because it, again, goes to the fact that I, I don't have this routine. I, I think I listen to music with these little wireless, or excuse me, first of all, I don't listen to music when I'm exercising ever because I find myself tuning out of the music and I just start focusing on how tired I am, how hard this is. I focus on my, like how heavy I'm breathing. Um, instead I listen to podcasts. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts and those kind of maintain that, um, that, that mental attention and that keeps my mind off of how hard I'm trying. Cause I just trust my body. I know I'm going to be pushing hard, but the podcasts allow me to just, to, to kind of disappear a little bit into something else. And it's where I get a lot of my news. It's where I do a lot of my learning. It's where I consume a lot of my content. Um, because with hours spent exercising every day, it's nice to be able to consume that content at some point, you know, like that's a lot of your day. Uh, and so, yeah, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I only do that probably maybe half the time I go out and, to be honest with you, the days I listen to podcasts versus the days I don't pretty much come down to what running or biking shorts I have available that have a pocket for my phone and what don't. And that it seems so trivial, but that kind of speaks to how, how kind of uh, free I am with this whole thing. It's, it's like a very just kind of vague concept of whether or not I need these podcasts or whether or not they're just kind of a nice bonus, you know? So if I can carry my phone and I kind of feel like listening to a podcast, sure. I'll toss my phone in my shorts pocket and listen to a couple podcasts. If I can't, no big deal. Oh, that's so cool. Um, so one of the things I told you I wanted to really dive into is mindset, mental skills, in particular with the work that you do, people who've seen your, your videos know that there is definitely an element of danger to what you do. And I bring up Alex Honnold, and we talked about him before we hit record, just because he's known to be the first, uh, the fastest person to uh, free solo El Capitano. And I think he did it in two hours and 30 minutes or something, some crazy time like that. And I once heard him on a podcast talking about assessing danger and and more or less uh, reflecting on his own level of fear. And he's a, obviously a big believer of preparation. And, and with preparation comes eased off fear and, and readiness. So for you, when you go into one of your journeys, like the Georgia trip, can you first talk about how you assess danger? or if you assess it, or what story do you tell yourself, or whatever. Just take us through that, that, that mental side of assessing danger. People like to... I've been teaching these one-hour-long online workshops during quarantine, just about different topics, and the most commonly requested topic is avalanche safety. And they want... People want to be able to take a one-hour course and walk out of there, check the box. I can now be safe in avalanche terrain. Um, and that's impossible. Unfortunately, it's not like hard to do. It's impossible. Um, avalanches are my biggest occupational threat and my largest fear in the world. Um, they are what 
will, uh, if something kills me in the mountains, it very well could be avalanches. Um, and it's this lifelong process of learning, you know, like calling yourself an avalanche expert is a recipe for disaster, um, because there just aren't experts. They're avalanche professionals. So much of it is hearing the same thing over and over. And it's easy to kind of fall into a funk and feel like, you know, everything about avalanches because you're hearing the same thing over and over. But like in, I think any learning environment, it's important for that repetition. Right. And, um, so avalanche safety is, is huge for me and it's, it's a huge part of what I do. It's terrifying. And uh, sharing that with others is really important for me. Um, the thing with avalanches people don't know is they, you, you can predict them. They can happen after you predict them. They can also happen when you don't predict them. Um, they can move 70 miles an hour. Uh, two thirds of people caught in avalanche dive from trauma of hitting rocks and going over cliffs and running into trees while this hundred mile per hour avalanche is pushing them downhill. Um, another third of people die from asphyxiation being buried under the avalanche, um, eventually breathing the same air for too long. The avalanche can set up like cement after it stops. It does set up like cement. It's not like snow where you can maybe dig yourself out you can't even move a finger when you're buried in an avalanche. It is like solid cement around your body and you're just entombed, hopefully waiting for one of your friends to find you with these little avalanche transceivers that we carry. Take a long eight foot long probe, these skinny little kind of tent poles, shove them through the snow until they strike your body and then pull this small backpack sized shovel out of their backpack and dig you out. And you have 15 minutes to survive. Um, frequently your partner can't even get to you because there's more danger hanging we call it hang fire, more avalanche danger above, um, the avalanche train, you can get buried 15 feet below the snow, the avalanche transceiver, the beacon, the, the probe can't even reach you, let alone dig you out. The hardest part of an avalanche, uh, uh recovery is the actual digging. Cause it's physically demanding. Cause it's like digging cement. You'll dig literal tons of snow, um, with these little tiny shovels that carry, you know, one cubic foot of snow at a time. Um, so it's, it's pretty wild and they're terrifying and they've killed my friends and pretty much anyone in the world of skiing uh, knows that they kill it. And like, like I said, I don't ski at the ski resorts at all. And so where I'm skiing, the ski resorts do avalanche mitigation. They fire cannons at the mountain and the, and the explosion will actually make the avalanches start so they can preemptively clear the mountain of potential avalanche debris or uh, terrain, excuse me, snow, uh, and make it safe for people to ski without the avalanche knowledge. When you're in the backcountry, away from the avalanche or the ski resorts, obviously no one's doing that for you, and thus you need to be as safe as possible. Um, and so, anyways, that's why I do so much of this avalanche education. Additionally, there's rock fall and ice fall from the freeze thaw cycle that happens in the mountains. Um, there's partner dynamics and something we call heuristic traps, which are this kind of this mindset shifts that happen in the mountains. Whether you think you're so much of an expert that you can totally ski this terrain without having an accident happen to you, or other people have skied this before you. So that proves that it's safe, which is not true. Um, Cause sometimes 10 people can ski the exact same line and it'll avalanche on the ninth person or whatever. Um, and so there's just so much unknown, so much hidden beneath the snow 
and so many dangers. I mean, just falling is a huge danger for me because these mountains that I'm skiing are so steep that if I fall, I'm not going to like break my shoulder. I'm going to fall to the bottom of this mountain and off this mountain. I'm going to die. Um, and so if something happens, like my ski boot releases from my ski binding toast. Um, and so I need to make sure my equipment's very reliable and, and just all of these things come together. The consequences are very, very high. Um, they're usually death when I'm skiing. Um, but the risk is pretty low because I'm so well versed in this. I continue this professional development throughout the year and I'm a very conservative and cautious, uh, person in the mountains. From what I've heard, and this is not just with your sport and what you do, but other similar sports that are extreme in nature and can be very dangerous is there comes the knowledge and experience, right? So reading the situation in the moment, but then there's also gut instinct and the role that gut instinct can sometimes play in it. And I've heard people say, don't ever underestimate gut instinct. So if you're, if you are truly wary about a situation, then sometimes trust your gut. So do you, do you believe, and I'm not saying that that's the way it is. I'm just saying that I've read about that and I've heard about it and some people really believe in it, but where do you stand with that idea of gut instinct and danger as well? Yeah. Intuition, I think is a big part of it. Um, but I think it's important to understand where your intuition is, is coming from. Is it coming from years of experience and learned practice? Is it coming from a movie you watch? Is it coming from some weird sense of deja vu? Um, there are all these stories you'll read about avalanches and accidents in the mountains where, you know, someone ever, all signs were, were greenlit and they're climbing this mountain, but one person in the group just didn't have a good feeling about it. And it bothered them so much that they eventually spoke up. And what we're kind of supposed to do in the mountains is kind of listen to the, I should say the most conservative voice. So if you're skiing with five people, four of which say, let's go, go, go. And one person says, I don't feel so good about this. Let's turn around. You always want to listen to that conservative, that safe voice. Um, and there's all these stories about one person just being like, guys, I just have a bad feeling. I don't know why, but I really don't think we should climb right now. And then people listen to them and, you know, two hours later, the entire thing that they were going to ski avalanches. It's kind of like mysterious why, you know, and, and I do read these stories and I do have a belief that intuition is an important part of the equation. Um, but I'm a very logical person by nature. And I think by training as well, um, I studied economics and, and I think a lot of kind of what I do, uh, favors being logical and in the mountains, I think that's no different. So if I have some, if I have a, my intuition is telling me one thing I'd like to be able to back it up with data. Can you give one example actually where, where you were in a situation anywhere in the world that you were climbing and skiing where you, you backed off, you thought it was going to be okay, but you decided to not go ahead with it in that moment for reasons A, B, and C. Just give us a real crystal clear example of what that looks like in your line of work. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, even in my backyard, the Wasatch Mountains here in Salt Lake City, Utah, um, I have to choose. I like to go skiing pretty much every day in the winter, you know, five, six days a week. And I have to choose where I'm going to go skiing, not based on what I want to ski that day, but based off the daily avalanche forecast that's actually, it's actually it's provided by this, um, by the organization, Utah Avalanche Center here. 
they give this daily avalanche forecast. I read that. I think about my experiences with, with the snowpack throughout the other days of the season. Um, I think about what I saw the day previous as far as snow conditions go. Um, and all of this kind of goes into this mental hard drive that I have going on. We actually have these checklists that can help you ignore what you want to ski and instead kind of make it a little more objective, like what is actually safe to ski today. Um, and so I will choose what myself and my partners are going to ski. We're, we're, we'll have a discussion about it. And what do we think is safe to ski today? And of that, what do we want to ski? It usually goes that way as opposed to what do I want to ski today? Cause if you do that, you kind of have this positive feedback ne- mechanism where you will convince yourself that it's okay to do something, you know? And that is a typical story in avalanche accidents that the group was able to convince themselves that it was safe to ski and not the other way around. Um, and so, yeah, I'll, I'll go out one day and I will think that a specific objective is, is going to be safe and I will be halfway up what we call the line, like the route that we're going to ski. And I see um, rocks coming down kind of around me, just these little pebbles. And throughout the day, as it gets warmer, they become a little bigger. And then eventually you'll see a, mi- a microwave sized rock rolling down the snow at 50 miles per hour right next to you. Um, and I'll, I'll see that and I'll realize, okay, it's getting a little bit too warm. There must be a, a rock wall above me. And as it gets warm, the ice that's trapping the rocks into the, the rocks around them um, melts. And that means the rock is now able to fall out. And when we start getting this rock fall, that becomes obviously a hazard. Um, and so we will turn around as quickly as possible and ski down because we don't have this rock fall, whether or not the avalanche danger is low enough. Um, and so there's these other variables that go into what we're doing that make us have a safe experience in the mountains and even being as conservative and as safe as possible. If you're going out there, um, it is still dangerous and some of the safest, smartest people still get in accidents and still get killed. And, uh, there's this element almost of luck that goes into it. And statistically, the more time that you spend out there in these, in this dangerous terrain, the more likely something will happen to you. And so I think the more time you spend out there, the more conservative you need to be in order to stack the odds in your favor. And, and how do you, and I, I hope this is not too personal, but in knowing the level of risk with what you do, and just as you described, the more you put yourself at, I don't want to say at risk, but in that element, then you're exposed to danger more and more. So how do you, um, how do you kind of, rationalize that in your mind to allow yourself to keep doing the work that you do? I mean, it's what I love, right? I was doing it before it was my job and I'll be doing it after it's my job, hopefully. Um, and it's not something that I need to rationalize because I'm not forcing myself to do it. Um, I, I want to be doing it. Um, you know, it's like people ask my parents, like, how do you feel about him doing this? And and they feel good about me because they feel good about me doing it because they know that, you know, I've got a good head on my shoulders. I'm super conservative up there. Um, I have the training. I have the, the expertise, if you want to call it that, to be as safe as possible. Is as safe as possible safe? No. Um, does that ensure safety in the mountains? No. But does it in, increase my odds of remaining safe up there for sure. Is that the best you can ask of someone who just has this pull inside of them to do this for sure. Um, and so I like to ski with other people that have a similar mindset. You go through the same training who value 
the safety of themselves and thus the safety of their partners. Cause you know what, if you get buried in an avalanche, I'm the one who needs the avalanche safety training, not you, because <laughs> I got to be able to find you. You're buried in cement. Right. And so, uh, I like to make sure that when I'm out, I'm out with partners who, who value safety in the same way I do. And that even goes as far as I take these wilderness, um, first responder courses where it's, it's almost like an EMT, but specific for people that don't have a lot of safety or medical equipment with them. Um, and who are at least like a day away from, um, hospital care. And so I take these courses every, I take them regularly every two years and I refresh between those two years in order to know, Hey, if things do hit the fan, what can I do to fix my partner's broken femur, at least stabilize it to a point where I can get them to, to more consistent safety. And one of the things that fascinates me about sports in general is this idea of flow states. And both mm. states are described literally by research. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi is one of the most famous flow researchers in the world. And he's in his 80s now. And for decades, he studied what it takes for people to get into a flow state. And then he actually really gets them to reflect on the experience of the flow state itself. And, you know, I played high school football. I played football at the university level. I was a quarterback, right? So there's something to be said about being in the pocket, drop back in the pocket, throwing a football with just chaos around you and trying to remain calm. And when I think of my best games as a quarterback, when I was in flow, it's like everything is silent around you and almost moving in slow motion. You know, people um, experience flow differently. But can you, in your sport, in your moments going down the mountains, skiing, can you describe being in those flow states and dangerous situations, but being in that flow state, what it feels like, and just describe that experience. And I know that with flow states, they don't happen all the time, but we can repeat them when we know the con- what the conditions are to create them in the first place. So just talk about anything you want about finding flow in your sport and describe what it's like. I got really into the, the flow thing for a while. I was reading the books and listening to the podcast and pretty interested in it. And all it really did for me was reaffirm that I experience flow relatively regularly, that everyone experiences it differently. And that I've kind of found the things that I do in the mountains to provide that flow for me. And after I kind of hit that point, I was like, okay, like I experienced this. That's great. Good to know. It's not why I do it. It's not something I go seeking. Um, but it's something I suppose I regularly experience. Um, and it's not like I, you know, you, you can say, Oh, the flow switch just turned on all of a sudden, but in hindsight, I can look at these experiences and know that, um, for me, flow typically kind of manifests itself as hyper aware, which is not the case for everyone but that hyper awareness is important because if I were to go into these other styles of flow that people talk about, which is, is almost like your brain turning off and just your body functioning in some cases, that is not good for me because that is not safe. Um, my brain needs to be going a million miles per hour to process the infinite number of, um, 
inputs being delivered to it. You know, if I feel a little gust of wind, that can affect avalanche, affect avalanche danger. Um, if I'm not keeping track of the time, I know that it may get too warm too quickly. If I'm not paying attention to my partner very, very closely, I may not realize that they're getting too tired and that's going to be dangerous because we're not going to end up on top of the mountain with no juice left in the tank. Um, and so it's really important for me to, uh, maintain this situational awareness because that is one thing that keeps me safe in the mountains. And I suppose that's an element of when I experience flow. Um, and I suppose that, uh, it, 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 what's crazy for me is so many of the, the gizmos that I use to help me climb these mountains, the ropes, the harnesses, the things that we put into the mountains, um, our ice axes and our crampons and all this stuff, our avalanche beacons and probes and shovels that are in our backpacks, all of this stuff, so much of what we carry, our first aid kit and extra puffy jacket, so much of what we carry in our training and what we think about, it's all for if things go wrong. If, if all I had to carry was what I needed to go up and down the mountains, my backpack would be a lot lighter. And if all I had to think about and train for was if everything went perfectly, I could spend my days a lot differently. If I didn't need this excess of fitness to use in case I needed to perform a rescue, I wouldn't have to be as strong. And so, so much of what we do is just in case things go wrong. We don't actually need ropes to climb the mountains. We need ropes in case we fall. And so there's there's so much of our training, our focus, our attention, our equipment, where we put our money, what we carry up the mountains is is in case things go wrong. And we don't think about it that way. We think of it as integral part of our kit, both our mental kit and our physical kit. And, but when I sit here and talk about it, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like, it's almost morbid. It's like everything we're talking and thinking about is if things go wrong, what do I do if you die while we're out there? I need to get home safely, but you're the one with the rope. You know, every day we leave the car, if we, if we drive together to the trailhead, my partner and I, we always say, we usually leave the key like on a tire or, you know, hidden in the bumper or something like that. So we don't have to carry it. But whoever drives always points that out to the other person. Like, Hey, the keys on the left tire. Hey, the keys in this zipper in my backpack. And we say that so casually, but what are we actually saying? We're saying, Hey, if I die, this is how you can drive home. And it's like, Jesus, this is really, really morbid, but it's, it's such a real aspect of it. And it's not that we're desensitized to it. It's that we understand the, I think I can't speak for everyone, but for me, it's not that I'm desensitized to the, the consequences that are the reality of this sport. Instead, I don't want to ignore them and push them aside. You know, I'll have these, these reckonings once in a while, whether it's when someone I, I know, you know, secondhand, um, dies in an avalanche or when I have a really close call or something like that, I'll have these reckonings with my own mortality where I realize, Oh yeah, this is really serious. Don't become desensitized. Don't become like too blase about this. But at the same time, don't focus on this. You know, a lot of people talk about when they're at the top of whatever they're going to do, do a high dive or they're going to start, you know, do some difficult thing on their bike or something like that. They visualize only what can go wrong. They visualize success and that is it. That's not the case for me. You know, I'm standing on top of a mountain. I realize, okay, I cannot ski over there because there's a crevasse. And if I ski over there, I will fall in the crevasse and that will not end well. 
I cannot ski too slow because I start a little avalanche with every ski turn. And if the snow catches me, that's going to send me down. You know, I think about what can go right, what can go wrong. And I try to have a very, very realistic picture without being tainted by um, outside influence, without wanting hear what I think I need to hear. I have this very real and a lot of like logical people in the mountains. Yeah. And as I listened to you talk, I, I told you about the course with Michael Gervais that I took. Um, it's called compete to create. And one of the things that he talks about, and he's trained Olympians and people do, doing extreme sports and professional football players. He's trained so many different athletes and what he talks about is this idea of mental and physical preparation. And when you are completely prepared, you then put yourself in the situation where you can give 100% to what you're doing. So everything you just described, the heavy backpack, the ropes, the, even the key on the tire, those are all things that go into the preparation to allow you to give 100% in the moment and be committed to your craft the doing of your craft, not, not the respond to what might go wrong, but is there something to that in your craft in knowing how prepared you are, you then have 100% buy-in in the moment to do what you're doing. Yes. And we talked about this in part one, this kind of concept of being present. And I, I've never one to like, really, I've never been one to talk about being present, like in the yoga mindfulness sense of the, the, the the colloquial way we say be present. Um, but in reality, I, I like, I totally am. I mean, I, I have to be, and if my attention's not there, that puts myself and my partner in a position of danger. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I have to be present. And at the same time, I am able to put 100% into what I'm doing. It's not always necessary to put 100% into what I'm doing, but, um, sometimes if I'm teaching a workshop or a clinic or something like that, and I say something that is, that is so obvious to me, and someone, you know, speaks up and they're like, Hey, I, I never thought about that. Or this is a beginner or something like that. And, and that helps um, kind of affirm for me that I, in many aspects of this stuff in the mountains honed over the past 15 years of living in the mountains, I have developed this expertise in, in many of these areas, even like what layers of clothing without taking too much stuff, you know, what need waterproof, what doesn't this has reached a point for me where it's, it's routine and it's obvious and I don't have to revisit it too frequently. But at the same time, I understand I don't have to revisit it too frequently because I've honed it so much over the years through so much of my experience. And that is something that I don't appreciate until it's kind of pointed out to me. And I take that moment to appreciate it, but also to reevaluate it. Like, have I come, have I become complacent in what I'm, what I'm carrying? Or is there new jacket technology, which would actually be better for me? Or am I carrying a layer of clothing that I haven't worn once in 15 years, you know? Um, and so revisiting this is also really good for me to do. And I just, I try to avoid falling into these traps of routine or complacency because I think they're dangerous. I think they're boring. I think they don't allow personal growth as much. And I don't think they allow me to perform as well as I'd like to perform. And what you're talking about there, we, I mentioned, I think, John Kabat-Zinn, who's a mindfulness uh, expert, meditation expert. And what John Kabat-Zinn, you know, he talks about the power of the present moment, but he also talks about the power of the beginner's mindset. So even if you are a world-class expert in something, the best in the world, Tiger Woods, um, 
you still need to bring a beginner's mindset into everything you do because there's always so much learning. There's no finish line, you know, and that's exactly what you're talking about. And in the work that you do is keeping that beginner's mindset. So even something that you think is just so obvious to other people, by keeping that beginner's mindset, you keep yourself in that position to continually, you know, be at the, and to sharpen the sword and to continue to learn. Right. And I think myself and, you know, the majority of humanity, this is, we, we have a benefit here because you know what, we're not Tiger Woods and I don't have anyone out there telling me I'm the Tiger Woods of skiing. And I don't need to kind of remind myself that I'm, I'm still learning because it's very obvious for me. And I think the benefit of not being the best in the world at something is that we, um, we genuinely are still learning and that can only be good for us in these kind of fields or specialties that we have. Can you talk about, um, we have a few more minutes. So there's just a few quick hitters that I want to uh, jump into. Um, breath awareness. Do you do any work with breath or like uh, using the breath to kind of calm yourself or, you know, to think more clearly? I don't know. Sometimes in, um, when I'm trying to be hard, when we typically when I'm going up, so climbing ice, climbing snow, uh, climbing rock, uh, it's a good thing for my partner to say, remember to breathe. Cause I'll realize that my breath is super out of whack or I'm holding my breath or something like that. Um, so just recently I've started to focus a little bit more on that just to try to keep that breathing consistent, but it's, it's definitely, I don't like practice it or anything like that. No, I, I do try to be aware of it though. Well, okay. What about visualization now? So again, I'm throwing these things at you because this is some of the stuff that I worked on in the course with Gervais and mm-hmm. he does something really cool called which he calls 10, 10, 10 with his pro athletes and, and the different people he works with. And 10, 10, 10 is a combination of breath awareness and visualization. So to prepare yourself for battle as a metaphor, right? Um, you have to imagine yourself in a, in a calm environment. You're performing in a calm environment. You're performing in what he calls a rugged environment where mm-hmm. things are getting a bit chaotic but then you're performing in what he calls a hostile environment and to each sport, it looks differently. So a hostile environment for you, you would be able to identify that in a moment, what that looks like. So what he does is he gets his athletes to um, literally be seated meditation style to visualize themselves performing in a calm environment and to take 10 deep and spacious breaths where the exhale is longer than the inhale. And, and what that does is it allows you to tap into your parasympathetic nervous system, which is, which reduces, um, or, or lowers cortisol, uh, spiking cortisol and adrenaline, which can be dangerous in the moment. It can keep you safe, but if there's too much, it's not good for you either. So he gets his athletes to visualize that calm experience, 10 deep breaths. Then they switch over to a rugged environment in their sport meditate or visualize 10 deep breaths and then they get themselves to visualize that you know that hostile environment and to literally be able to smell and hear what they would hear and see what they see but then to tap into the breath so that they program their mind so if they're feeling if a quarterback is stepping up to the line at you know they have to go for it on fourth and ten in the semifinals of the nfc conference game they've already visualized being in that 
hostile moment where they have to perform. They've done the breath work so they can simply, when they recognize they're in that moment, they can tap into their breath to, to kind of calm themselves, to give clarity, but to keep them sharp and on the edge so that they can still perform. So it's really fascinating work. But can, can you talk about the role of visualization when you're, you know, and you might not sit down and actually say, okay, I'm going to devote 20 minutes to visualization, but you probably oftentimes think about your climbs and your, you know, the sense you take. Just talk about some of the things you might visualize um, before a climb and a ski. Yeah, I, I don't do visualization and I, I typically, you know, I, I'm wondering if what you're, what you're referring to, because this is what you, you think about when you think about like athlete training, you hear so much about these kind of things from coaches and there's all these books and research on, yeah, the cortisol and all this stuff. I, I can't help but think, and I'm sure these guys would disagree with me, but that like, this doesn't apply to me. And the reason being success in my sports involves staying alive. That's it. It doesn't, it's not being the fastest, the best, the strongest. It's just surviving. Um, and if I get to the top, that's a bonus. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's so important for you, I mean, to maintain that presence and from my mind, just be computing the whole time. And I'm not talking about my trail running or my rock climbing, because those things are more um, calculated. There is a more, there's a, there's a rating system, right? There's the time, the difficulty and those for skiing. There's not that there's, can you get up and down that mountain safely? And are you going to have fun doing it? That's it. Um, and so when I think about things like visualization, I'm like, I, I don't know how, I don't even know what I would visualize. I could visualize getting to the top, but that's not the goal. The goal is to stay alive. So I could visualize, yes, there's no avalanches. There's no rock fall. We're both feeling strong. There's no ice, but like you, what's the point of visualizing that? Cause you could get halfway up and all of get stuff. All of a sudden there could be a hundred foot patch of ice and like, well, I visualize it with no ice, but there's ice, <laughs> you know? And, and so I just can't help but think, does that just, not apply in like that typical sense of it um, to me as well. And I don't know. It's a good, you know, you, you got me thinking about it because I really believe in the power of visualization and breath work, but due to the uncertainty of what you do and un, not being able to predict what will happen or what might happen can change the way that's done. So I, I don't have the answer and I'm not saying that it sounds like the mental framework that bring in is hypervigilance and hyper awareness and that's the skill that you develop so i'm not saying that that visualization and breath work is going to help you be even better i'm just wondering because the sports psychologist would definitely have you look at it in a different light given the, the context of your situation so i'm just curious to know what he would actually say to you you know he, he had a great podcast with Alex where he was talking about this type of thing. And Alex does visualize, but Alex's, uh, Alex Honnold's work is a lot more like calculated, slow in the moment where he has time to think. So that's and he has typically less objective hazard unless a rock breaks or a bird flies in his face or something like that. His hazards are more subjective. Yeah. My hazards are more 
objective, right? Yeah. He has weather too, of course, yeah. but, um, but so much, I guess, of my sport is reactionary, which is weird. You don't think of a, a track and field athlete as being reactionary or a golfer as being reactionary, right? And maybe that's why w- what I do, I think, as, as, as unrelatable as it may seem to most people, I think that's one reason that people in corporate environments and jobs where there's other factors besides themselves, right? They have other people making decisions at work. That, that may be why it's, um, why it's more relatable in that aspect, because it is like more like real life. You have a bunch of other factors. You don't have a perfect indoor track. It's 65 degrees in the room. You know, the shape of it, you know, what your spikes feel like, you know, exactly, you know, like it, it's just not as a groomed of an environment. And there's so many objective, um, changes, dangers for me. And there's so many subjective things happening around you that it's like, it's, it's just real. It's just very, very raw out there. Um, and breath work, I can, I can help visualization. I don't think I can do a whole lot of visualizing, um, and what success looks like for me. I I don't go out there thinking success means staying alive. I go out there and say, I want to get to the top of this mountain. You know, I'm human. That's why I'm here. Um, but it's so ingrained in what I do that it's like, I don't even have to think about the fact that yes, the priority is always safety. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about that. It's just, it's just like said, you know? Yeah. It's, it's really a fascinating topic. And if I come across some of his um, blogs or some podcasts that might dive into this, I'll share them with you uh, over the next few weeks. But I know that you're pressed for time and, I'm really happy we got this second chat um, because this is the stuff that I really wanted to dive into. And now I definitely, you know, based on part one and kind of getting a general overview of what you do, I now can better understand kind of the, the more granular kind of thinking that you do related to your sport and um, your work. So uh, awesome. I know we're going to talk again in the future, um, but I, I really do appreciate it, Brody. And, I remind people where they can find you on, find you on social. Yeah. Just at Brody 11 on everything and Brody 11.com. Oh yeah. The new film is called lost. You can find it on YouTube. It's a, uh, it's a ski film that has absolutely nothing to do with skiing. It's, it's great. I can't wait to uh, share with high school teachers doing work with their students around, you know, there's uh, lots of different courses that that, that can apply to. So um, Brody, yeah, just stay in line, but thank you very much, man. It was great to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. So, everybody, thank you very much for listening to part two with Brody Levin, and I hope you come back to listen to future. Andy Vasily.